What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steyer Blondie. This is Roland Ozebal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Last December, Texas-based ska-punk band The Holophonics released Lavos, their fourth full-length of original music, though the band have released a lot more music than that. Depending on who you ask, There's 17 or 18 albums of cover songs. But the band is done recording covers and don't want to be perceived as a goofy band. That will be abundantly clear to anyone that gives Lavos a listen. It's the most personal record that lead singer Eric Dano has ever written. Today we talk to Eric about Lavos. We also dig into the holophonics history. And we hope by the end of the interview, you've gotten to know Eric a little better. Hey Aaron, who has better hair, me or Eric? Is this you, you and Eric in 2023 or Eric 2023 and Adam Davis in like 2003? <laughs> no, we're just going off of uh, now. Right now? Oh, I might have to give it to Eric then. Damn. Yeah. It's, but, you know, it's a, it's a close second. <laughs> At least I'm a contender. I mean, in terms of like lead singers, you're definitely like in the top 10 lead singers. For good hair. Oh, just good hair. Yeah. Okay. Very good hair. <laughs> What's your um, routine for taking care of your hair? Nobody wants to hear that. Get to the episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I want to start this interview a little different than we normally do because I was reading the Brooklyn Vegan interview you did in December. One thing you said caught my attention. You said that um, you hope that people get to know you better since with these new lyrics and especially since you're not a huge social media person. Yeah. So I thought, I thought it'd be good to uh, get to know you a little better before we got into the interview. Oh, sure. I like that. <laughs> I got some questions. We're just going to go through some of these questions. Just don't think about it. Just answer. Sure. Okay. What's your greatest accomplishment of life? Put them on the spot right at the beginning. My instinct is to say the album we just released. I, I... All right. <laughs> well, hey, go with your instinct. Don't think about it. Okay. All right, Lavos. Next one. Name one item on your bucket list that you haven't got to yet. Hmm. Man, this is getting existential real quick. I was not prepared for this. Um, <laughs> I I, I kind of want to own my own recording studio. I don't know if that's a real bucket list item, but I'm working towards it. All right. That's good. Okay. Uh, what is your best childhood memory? Oh. <laughs> it's like the opposite of a therapy se- session. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, uh, what constitutes a childhood? Like teen years? Let's say prepubescent. 
Oh gosh. I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe, yeah, I, I don't, I can't think of anything specific. It was not a great time in my life. <laughs> okay. So nothing. Nothing. Or uh, leaving childhood. That was your best childhood memory. Oh yeah. That's for sure. The best part of it. Yeah. Okay. Do you believe in free will? Yes. Yes. Okay. Getting to know Eric. Next question. What would you do if you found a dead body in a hotel room? And be honest. Uh, I guess call, I guess call the concierge. I wouldn't want to call the cops because I wouldn't want to deal with the cops. Let's let the concierge deal with that shit. I mean, when this question, I don't like, I picture like a, like a dive hotel when I read this question, but I guess you picture like a, like a fancy hotel. So you're, you're staying at the fancy hotel. I'm dreaming. I'm (laughs) dreaming a little. (laughs) Yeah. And the fancy hotel, well, the fancy hotels want is where the murders are going to happen. (laughs) <laughs> I'm I'm yeah, in my but, I'm in my element in shitty Motel Sixes where where things look out of place all the time. That's I got no problems with that environment. But the ritzy place where all the rich people are, yeah, that I could see murders happening there. I mean, no, it, it, there's no saying it's a murder. I mean, what if there's just a guy died? Well, uh, my mind went to murder. So, <laughs> all right, whatever. Concierge, we accept it. Next one. <laughs> Have you ever attempted to swallow toothpaste? <laughs> Oh no, 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 no. I follow those rules to the T. Yeah. You, you no, you can't swallow toothpaste. Are you talking like you're brushing your teeth and you you just swallow the toothpaste or Never. or like or like squirting toothpaste into your mouth and swallowing that? I mean any intentional uh attempt to swallow toothpaste, not not unintentional. You could do it while brushing your teeth, that's fine. I I remember like as a child being very strictly told you do not swallow toothpaste. And I took that to heart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're smart. I mean, we're learning a lot about you. Okay. And I, I think I, I'm hoping people get to know you better through these, con- this, uh, these questions. <laughs> this episode's off to a weird start. Okay. Next question. If you had the chance to invent a country, what would you name it? <laughs> uh, I don't believe in countries, no borders. All right, no borders, the country. <laughs> <laughs> this is interesting. Okay, next question. What do you usually think about while you're on the toilet? Um, like social media stuff, probably. Oh, yeah? You're planning your posts? Well, just seeing what I missed. Just catching up. Just catching up. All right. Yeah. Do you really want someone to give you an honest answer when you ask them how they've been? If I ask someone how they've been. Yes. Do you really want to know? Like if they've had a bad day, do you want to hear about it? Or you just want to, I'm fine. I, I think, I think if I've asked someone, like, how have you been? Or like, you know, how's your day been? Like, I think I am fishing for a little bit more of a specific answer. I am a little bit more invested. If I just give you a, like a New York, yo, how you doing? I probably don't care. Okay. How have you been? How you doing? We're looking for different answers. Yeah. Okay. Final question. Have you ever dropped food on the floor accidentally and then picked it up and ate it? Absolutely. I can't afford new food every time I drop some shit. What's the, what's your, how many seconds rule do you live by? Five second rule, 10 second rule. I, I tend not to go by the clock and use, use some other metrics. Like how, how dirty is this floor really? 
Yeah. Or how comfortable okay. am I with the level of dirt on this floor? So if it's a clean floor, you, you can let it sit there for 10 minutes before you pick it up. I wouldn't let food go unnoticed for 10 minutes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I feel like I know so much more about you now. <laughs> also, I think in the effort to get to know you better, um, we were talking before we started recording, uh, you, you do work at live, you do live work sound, you do studio sound. Do you want to talk a little bit about that side of your life? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, really what's keeping me busy right now is I, I am an audio engineer at Brooklyn Bowl in Williamsburg. Um, and, you know, we, we chatted before we started recording that we get a lot of jam bands there, but we've got some ska shows there occasionally, too. Uh, we had Scottalites and uh, King Django has played a couple shows there over the last few months. Um, and uh, the guys from the Slackers were in... Uh, the, uh, the band that he has, uh, Stubborn All-Stars. Uh, mm-hmm. So we get some ska. There's there's ska at Brooklyn Bowl. But the jam band scene, that's the big the big scene there. That is the popular scene at our venue. Um, the owner is a real deadhead. And we get a lot of awesome bands. In that scene, we had Umphreys McGee last week. That's uh, That was like a 16-hour show for us. That was a big one. So that's been on my mind recently. Wait, 16 hours of performing? Of work, like we got there at 10 a.m. to unload their 18-wheeler, and we were there till after 2. How long was the actual performance? Uh, they did two sets, about an hour and a half each. Okay. You have experience in this area. The gear for a jam band is more than, say, like a punk rock band, right? Oh, yeah. A lot of them are traveling with their own lighting rigs and stuff, too, uh, which is a huge appeal of the jam scene, like big lighting shows. Uh, so it's a much more involved production. And speakers, they're just... They bring speakers too? Uh, you know, we haven't done anything where they brought their own PA system like that. But I mean, we get some pretty gnarly amps, uh, real custom stuff, boutique amps. Um, I forget, uh, the uh, the guy from Umphreys had, he was playing a Schroeder amp, which I learned that night there's only like 200 of these in existence and it sounds freaking awesome. Um, but yeah, they uh, there's a lot of custom machinery that goes into making these uh these jam band shows in the venn diagram of uh ska shows and jam band shows what sits in the middle (laughs) reggae i guess (laughs) i mean we get we get plenty of reggae shows modest yahoo uh did his uh two two nights of hanukkah shows um last month and they got pretty jammy i'm gonna say uh i'm gonna be slightly controversial and say the slackers because Mm. They're they're a little jammy. Okay. Yeah, they go there. They go there. RX Bandits? I think that's the polar opposite of jam band, because that's like very constructed. Oh, they they need jam. Yeah, but it's not it's not loose. It's not loose though. Right. I think RX Bandits would go over very well at the scene at Brooklyn Bowl. And I keep telling our talent buyer that he needs to book them. Um, All right. and, and then you know, have the holophonics open the show, of course. <laughs> so in the Venn diagram, it's reggae, slackers, and RX bandits. Sure. I'm okay with that. Okay. <laughs> what about horns? Do you ever get any horns in these jam bands? Oh yeah. We get lots of horn bands. Okay. Um, I, and I, I, that's like an area of expertise for me. I love mixing bands with horns um yeah that's that's a huge thing here and when when you have horns on stage you just take them all the way out of the monitors right they don't need to hear themselves (laughs) (laughs) 
No, we, we pride ourselves on having some really good uh, monitor engineering at our venue. <laughs> good, good. So let's talk a little about your uh, your history with music. You, you grew up in Long Island? That's correct. Not something I'm proud of, really, but it happened. Why aren't you proud of that? Well, okay, Long Island, when I was growing up, there was some music happening. Uh, so it wasn't a total cultural wasteland the way it is now. Um, but when I, so I lived in Texas for 10 years and recently moved back to New York, uh, during the pandemic. And of course everything was kind of a shit show. So I stayed at my parents' place, uh, for a little while until I was able to get a job here in Brooklyn and Long Island really sucks right now. I, I'll just be totally can't like, I hated being on Long Island in 2021, uh, especially like seeing like, you know, Trump, Pence, uh, signs on everyone's lawn like well after the election just like these and lots of like pro cop bullshit like all over long island uh it's not my scene so i grew up there uh and reluctantly spend time there whenever i am called to by family but it's not my favorite place in new york gotcha okay so so, but in the early 2000s when did you get involved with music there or even just start going to shows um well you know i've been playing violin since i was like seven and uh, I started going to shows pretty much immediately after playing, uh, starting to play electric bass. Um, I guess like in middle school, a lot of kids were sort of discovering guitar. And uh, I was like, well, all my friends play guitar, so I'll play bass. And I already had been playing violin for a long time. Uh, so I knew how to do all the music stuff. And um, once there were enough like 12 year olds, like just sort of figuring it out, we, uh, we all started bands. And, uh, it was pretty much full speed ahead from there. Uh, I mean, we, you know, did, there was a pretty serious like church basement DIY show scene when I was in high school on Long Island. So, uh, we did a lot of that stuff. Um, but what time, what time is this? Is this like 2003, 2004? Yeah. Or earlier, earlier than that. Um, like right after nine 11, I is sort of like the benchmark in my mind, um, where everyone started getting involved in shitty little kid punk bands. Tell us, so what were the venues that you were going to and uh, what were the bands that you were seeing? Uh, so like the real venues, there is the downtown, which was in Farmingdale. And that's that you know, stopped existing a long time ago. Uh, the crazy donkey was another one that also doesn't exist. Um, some of these other long Island venues, uh, we, Honestly, they wouldn't go to a lot of like real venues. There was, what's it called? I forget what it's called now. I just saw Joystick play a show there a few months ago. Um, Amityville Music Hall, I think it's called. I for, yeah, that's what it's called now. I, I forget what it was called like 20 years ago, but I definitely played like pay-to-play shows there when I was a kid. Um, but yeah, the, the church basement scene was like where all the cool shows were happening. Um, all the all-ages shows and everything. There was a place in East Meadow called the Calvary Lutheran Church, I think. We went to a lot of shows there. Um, and like that scene, right, like early to mid-2000s, like Patent Pending, I think, was like the big band that played those those church venues. What kind of music was that? Pop punk. Uh, although I think they kind of started as Scott. They definitely had a horn section for a little while. Mm. What was your first band called? I don't want to say. 
Is it is it offensive or no? It's just stupid. Well, that's fine. Tell us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> then we won't tell anybody. Okay. All right. Fine. Yeah, yeah. All right. So we were thirteen when we started this band. We called it Day Tripper after the Beatles song, but we we sure. played we played like Metallica kind of eighties style metal. Um, and we did that all through middle school and high school. Same group of guys. We we stayed together for like over five years. And uh, actually, fun fact: the rhythm guitar player in that band that I played with all through high school is now the drummer in Stop the Presses out here in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jack Good. He's one of my uh, really good friends, and he is next week tracking drums for me in, for my next solo album. Nice. Okay, Aaron, is Day Tripper an embarrassing band name? No. No, not at all. I guess it's just stupid because it was like a Beatles reference, and we, we were like 13, and we didn't know any other music besides the Beatles, but then we started playing metal, so I don't know. <laughs> that's <laughs> fine. There's way worse band names. Yeah. That's not that's not even a bad band name. That's actually a good band name. <laughs> so, so your shit at that time was like metal and punk or what? Yeah, so the band we played mostly like Metallica covers until we started writing our own music that was ripping off that kind of stuff. Um, but I mean, we did we just learned songs like that were on the radio. Like when American Idiot came out, we learned pretty much that whole record. Um, and yeah, you know, like Blink One Eighty Two. Of course, everyone was learning to play our instruments off of Blink One Eighty Two songs. Um, so yeah, you know, pop punk was in, was in the mix. We were a little less discerning about genre than most of us are these days. For a Metallica cover, who was playing the solos? Uh, our lead guitar player, uh, he was like a phenom, right? At like 13, he was playing note for note, um, which was kind of our our appeal. We were playing a lot of local gigs where it's like, look at this 13, 14 year old kid nailing Led Zeppelin solos, Metallica solos. Um, and I still play with that guy too. Uh, we gig in a, a wedding band um, out here in New York. What was your favorite Metallica song? Go. <laughs> um, now we're back then. The whole catalog, anything. Maybe, maybe Orion. Um, Cause I was a bass player and it just really struck me that like you could do a bass solo. That was the first time I had heard of that concept. What do you think of their new song? I haven't heard it. <laughs> it's not bad. The solo is a little lackluster, but other than that, it's it's kind of a return to form. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Metallica needs to write any new songs, though. They they literally could just tour on their back catalog forever. Yeah, I'm. I, I honestly, the whole Napster thing. I kind of checked out. Uh, I don't need to pay attention to Metallica anymore. I'm past that point in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what was your familiarity with ska and the ska scene in Long Island at the time? Uh, well, I think on a general level, it was just kind of the standard issue millennial ska fan way to go about it. Like I had heard ska on the radio in the 90s because um, the radio was the way we discovered new music, I guess. Um, and uh, just became interested in like that sound with the horn section, I guess, which is an easy entry point for kids. Uh, but there were a lot of ska bands on Long Island uh, at the time, and all the shows were mixed genre. So we would play shows with 
local ska bands constantly, um, even playing weird Metallica cover style metals. Um, and the big Long Island ska bands at the time that were like, uh, I don't know, like famous, local famous or whatever, were uh, high school football heroes who I really loved. I had a burn CD of high school football heroes uh, that I just played over and over and over. There was the fad, um, which mm-hmm. uh, their guitar player, Tom was like the older brother of a guy like in the, in our high school. So like everyone was really stoked about the fad. Um, and uh, then ASOB of course was pretty big, but I famously did not like them at the mm. time even though Jeff Rosenstock is my favorite artist now. Uh, yeah. Why didn't you like him? Well, to be fair, I don't think like in 2004, there was really a representative way to go about experiencing that, that band or, or what like Jeff's whole thing was like, they didn't have a proper album release until after I graduated high school and after the band had already broken up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I guess like it just seemed a little too chaotic for my 15 year old brain. Did you see them live? I may have, this is the, the the crazy thing about like this time with all these, like all ages shows that were happening around long Island. I, I probably was at a show that they played, but I don't remember ever actually seeing them live. Mm-hmm. What about, uh, was channel 59 already broken up by that point? Probably. I'm not too familiar with them. That's a uh, Dan Deacon's old ska band. Okay. Um, Edna's goldfish was, was, uh, the other big one that they, yeah. w- they were broken up by the time I was going out to shows. Did you ever get to see them when they got back together? No. What about, uh, scofflaws? You ever see scofflaws? They're more old school, but you know, they continued on. No, and I, I haven't seen them. Um, but yeah, they're another big name. Honestly, I was super into ska when I was in high school, but not a lot of my friends were. Um, I always wanted to be in a ska band, uh, but I couldn't get anyone else to jump in with me. So, I mean, we just played metal. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So after Long Island, you end up, you go to college in Delaware. Yeah. Yeah. I did my undergrad at the university of Delaware. And then what brought you to Denton, Texas? And, And when did you arrive there? Uh, so in 2010, I started grad school at the University of North Texas in Denton. Okay. And that's where I met the Holophonics guys. So before that, though, you started a hip-hop group. Yes. Uh, so it was an eight-piece hip-hop group that I played in, and so did Will, uh, our drummer. Uh, he played percussion in that group. And uh, our trumpet player, Harold, wasn't like an official member of that hip-hop band, but he would jam with us and like be a guest artist on stage a lot. Um, it was a fun group. And they were called what? The boom box, uh, spelled B O O M B A C H S. Okay. Yeah. It was like a, like jazz fusion hip hop, like Neo soul, like very influenced by, um, the roots and, uh, snarky puppy. Uh, they were like a local Denton band at the time. Oh, okay. Then they went on, you know, they moved to New York and won Grammys and stuff, but they, uh, they were like a, Denton, Dallas, UNT jazz band a long, long time ago. (laughs) So Holophonics form in 2012. Yeah. 
As I understand it, there was really no ska scene or ska bands at that point in uh, Denton. In Denton proper, no. Uh, it, so the the scene as a as a music market, I suppose, is kind of weird because it's sort of the whole Dallas Fort Worth area is is considered like one market, but you've got Dallas, Fort Worth, and Denton as like the the three points of this geographical triangle. So there mm-hmm. were a few ska bands in Dallas. Uh, Rude King was really the the big ska band that had been going on for a while uh, when we started. Um, and there was also this band called Informant, uh, which was sort of a um, the follow-up project of uh, Detonate, which you might know Duck from Joystick was in. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he he was in Texas with that band Detonate, and then I guess he moved to New Orleans before I moved to Texas. Um, and then some of the other guys from that band started this new band, Informant. Mm. And that, that band was really cool, sort of uh, more on the, the prog ska side of things. Um, but yeah, there wasn't a whole lot going on in terms of Denton ska. Um, I mean, it changed a lot over the next few years. Like, there's suddenly like a bunch of new ska bands popping up um so for yeah for a while there there was actually like a really healthy ska scene uh in in the the dallas fort worth area so you missed out on some of the stuff before you though like uh for instance chris reeves ska band yeah i didn't i didn't know that band what were they called again adam the bordigans oh yeah the (laughs) (laughs) yeah the board against yeah they're great. Adam toured. Uh, Link 80 and that band toured. And uh, it was probably, I think, one of uh, the best tours Link 80 ever did. It was absolutely the worst tour that Link 80 did. But, <laughs> but the Bordigans, as not great as they were, were the <laughs> the best band on that tour with us. Right <laughs> and they were like little kids. They were like 14, 15, 16. <laughs> awesome. Um, and Chris told me that, now I'm curious on your perspective. He told me like what you were saying, that Denton is part of Dallas Fort with the bigger scene, but that it has its own vibe as its own scene. What's your take on that? Yeah, Denton can be hard to pin down. Um, it's a college town for sure. So, And it's, not only that, it's a college town with a very well-renowned music school. I think, I think actually like in terms of enrollment, UNT has the biggest music school in the country. Um, mm. And it is the first music school in the U S to offer like an actual degree in jazz music specifically. Uh, so there's a huge jazz scene that's specific to the school of music there. Um, and there's a lot of like weird quirky things that happen, uh, with the local music because it's so tied into a a college that rotates its membership in, in and out like every four or five years, like completely there's a new group of students. Um, so it's very cyclical in the way things work in Denton. If you stick around for longer than five years, it's, uh, actually pretty unusual. And, uh, there's, there's definitely a lot, or when we were around, there was definitely a lot based on like the house show scene, uh, and college parties and that kind of thing. Um, but it can be really tough to uh, to nail down exactly what's going to be like a tastemaker in the Denton scene. Um, a lot of really interesting indie music pops up for a few months and then disappears. 
Uh, so it's it's pretty nebulous the way things work there. I'm just I just did a Google search for some uh, UNT alumni. There's some names that popped up: Pat Boone, Don Henley, Nora Jones. Yeah, those are the big ones. Yeah, <laughs> a meatloaf. Huh. He wasn't a music student, I don't think. But he. Oh, okay. He's just alumni of the school. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Don't quote me on that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. What What are some of the? So Chris mentioned to me venues: Rubber Gloves, Andes, and Killers Tacos. Yeah. Care to care to paint us a picture of these venues and maybe add to it? Uh, Killers Tacos is great. They are still around, and the last Denton show that we played was there um, in 2021, 22, about a year ago, I guess. Yeah, it's spring of last year. It's Time is a little bit weird for me right now. <laughs> but uh, Killer's Tacos is great. Uh, Rubber Gloves, they were a pretty legendary, I'm doing air quotes, air quote, legendary punk venue um, in Denton for a long time, but I... I get they're they're not around anymore. Um, and I guess it's fine for me to say like, they're not going to blacklist me and prevent me from playing since they don't exist. But I was never impressed with (laughs) with that venue. Every time we were there, they were assholes to us. Uh, and they did this really weird thing about like music copyright. Like they didn't want to pay their ASCAP fees or whatever. Uh, so they did this weird protest thing about it and it didn't work out and they were just dicks the whole time. Uh, so I never really loved rubber gloves. Um, we played Andy's bar a lot. I like that venue. Um, J and J's pizza was probably one of the best DIY, uh, venues for any genre, uh, like in the, in the touring circuit for like, it was well known, um, like on, on like that website, like, uh, what do DIY.org. I don't know if any of y'all ever use that to book shows, but, um, J and J's got a lot of like very low level DIY touring acts coming through all the time. And it was really cool. Uh, they would give you pizza and the pizza was not great because that's my opinion as a New Yorker. (laughs) Uh, but, uh, we played a lot of shows at J and J's. Um, it was a really cool vibe and they did the same thing that rubber gloves did where they closed and reopened a bunch of times and changed owners. And I think it's finally gone for good as of a couple of years ago, like they didn't last over the pandemic and they, the building changed landlords and they uh, renovated the space. And it's now something else entirely, unfortunately. So it was holophonics. Did you, were you the founder forming, you know, did you form holophonics? Yeah. Yeah. Is this your first ska band? Uh, no, I was in a ska band in, my undergrad in Delaware. Oh, okay. Uh, we were not very good. We were just basically a campus, like fuck around kind of band. Um, it was fun, but yeah, it was, it was, it was totally unmanageable. It was a nine person ska band with like mostly music majors. Uh, so we, we had like five or six horn players. Um, and you know, we just played on campus. Uh, we did a lot of covers and, uh, the original songs we wrote were really silly and um, it was just a fun thing to do. And that's where uh, I met my buddy, Nick, who is my co-host for the podcast that I do adventure guys. Mm. Okay. So first question, what's the name of the band? Second <laughs> question, give a, what's the silliest song you wrote? Uh, also a stupidly named band. It, uh, it was so I didn't come up with this name. It, it was called Dance Hall Throwdown. Uh-huh. And 
now there's obviously a band called Dancehall Crashers, uh, and we w- just weren't aware of them because this is this is like 2008, I think, maybe late 2007, 2008. Um, and the way that bands existed online was basically MySpace music at the time. There's no streaming yet, so we didn't really know about this band Dancehall Crashers because uh, like they weren't active at the time. Yeah, they had broken up by then. Yeah, yeah, and and even when they were active, I don't really know like how much reach they got on the East Coast because I hadn't heard anyone talk about them uh, in two, by the time I I had reached twenty years old. Um, so we were just like, okay, that seems like a cool name, whatever. Our drummer just thought of it, and uh, and then shortly thereafter, we did find out about Dancehall Crashers. Like, oh, this was a real band. Um, but they're not active and we're not very serious about what we're doing. So who cares? <laughs> um, but yeah, we wrote ridiculous, stupid, silly songs. Uh, the, I didn't write any lyrics, but like one of the songs was about nachos. Mm. Uh, one of the songs was about killing zombie Nazis in that video game that I never played. I don't know. <laughs> what was your take on nachos? Oh, I'm very pro nachos. It was a pro nachos song. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right, not too bad. I mean, Dance Hall Throwdown, <laughs> if there wasn't a Dance Hall Crashers, would be a pretty good name. I I think that's the the only thing that makes it a bad name is the existence of Dance Hall Crashers. Right. I'm not even sure how that name came into the mind of whoever thought it up. I mean, it had to subliminally have been a a ripoff, so I don't know. So, did you start Holophonics to be a serious like to be a band that you were going to really pursue? Well, this is sort of the interesting confusion about our origin story. <laughs> well, yeah, let's clear up your origin story. Sure. So I started my own little DIY recording studio out of the house that I was living in. Uh, and I called that Holophona Records. And I recorded like the early stuff for the hip hop band, the Boombox, uh, a bunch of other local bands. And uh, the idea was that the holophonics would be like sort of the house band of this record label studio recording thing that I was just doing. Um, and like, I would get, you know, the guys to sit in on sessions and, and where I could produce local bands and get, you know, the guys from the holophonics help out and do recordings. And that never really transpired in that particular way. Um, I just sort of wound up doing it as a band um, independently, we never really were associated with any other recordings or, or local groups or anything like that. Um, so it was just, it was just sort of like a side project at the time. Uh, cause I was doing the hip hop band and, uh, I was recording a bunch of other local groups. Um, and there wasn't really like, like a clear mission statement that we are ever articulated to anyone out there, which is why this became so muddled and stuff. But I, the clearest way I can talk about it now is that we were, we were a character band in the way that the Aquabats are a character band. Like they put on costumes and they're superheroes. Our costumes were real big fish and less than Jake from the nineties. <laughs> uh, well, how, what, where did that idea come from? Did it, did it seem like a long time ago? Because I mean, those bands are still touring. There, there were plenty of serious 
music projects that I was involved in at the time. And so we wanted to do something a little bit more lighthearted where we, there could be a comedy aspect to it. Um, of course I really loved ska and I was like, okay, how can I rip off some of my favorite ska bands? All like Aquabats, Rhythmic Fish, Lesson Jake. Uh, how can I do all the shtick they're, they're doing sort of roll it into my own thing. Mm. Um, and it was fun. Like we were doing original music from the beginning. Um, we were just also doing covers like the, probably the biggest little shtick theme that we had going on was the idea of selling out. Cause every ska band had a song about selling out. Did they though? <laughs> <laughs> the goofy ones sure did. And that's, that's what we're pulling on. So the, uh, the the idea of selling out and doing cover songs was like, Hey, this, this seems like it all goes together. Well, we can conceptually find a thread there. So let's do an album of cover songs, like pop songs. And, uh, and that's like a sellout move. And then very quickly thereafter, we did a Christmas album, uh, which was also like, that's like the king of sellout moves to make a Christmas album. Right. Um, and this is all supposed to be ironic because we're doing it at such an excruciatingly DIY level. Uh, it's all just like very shitty home recording in our living room. Um, like no aspirations to really, uh, to actually sell out, to actually go for like pop music success. Uh, so that, that was the joke. Um, but unfortunately for where I am now, 10 years later, uh, the cover songs really kind of took off and got a life of their own. And people started uh, seeing that and not the original songs and the original songs that we were writing then were also very satirical and goofy and sort of commenting on the whole like 90s ska thing. But then people that were finding that weren't really getting that it was supposed to be satire and they were taking it more at face value, uh, which didn't feel great. I was like, this, this was supposed to be a little bit of a joke, but uh, it seems like everyone's missing that. And I'm tired of the punchline anyway, because I've just been telling the same joke for over and over and over. So the, we, we sort of existed with this comedy satire thing for really only like th the first three years, not even. Uh, and it's, it's been a real tough subsequent seven years trying to break free of that idea. <laughs> you recorded 17 albums of covers though, right? Yeah, I think there's technically 18. Okay. If you count if you count our, <laughs> our B-sides record. Um so the I mean we tried to uh communicate this that like hey, we're not really doing the cover songs uh because we love it. We're just doing it because social media and people still didn't get that. And then it got to the point where like all right, we are so done with cover songs. I'm not even going to try to like make this a marketing thing anymore. Uh, but we kind of got stuck in this cycle where we were obligated to fulfill these fan requests. Um, and then people kept hiring me to do extra stuff. So like the last, the last cover album that I did by choice was in 2017. And that was the Jimmy Eat World record. Mm -hmm. Clarity. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite albums of all time. And that was supposed to be a little bit of like a springboard to be like, Hey, covers 
all right, we get the joke, not super interested in that punchline anymore, but there's maybe a way to do this that's a little bit more reverent. Um, this is not necessarily a parody. This is a tribute. Like, I actually love this record. I want to be singing these songs. Uh, but that was 2017. That was the last time that I actually picked a song on my own that I wanted to do a cover recording of. Every every record since then, every cover uh, after 2017 was picked by someone else, which became a real drag for me. Uh, I definitely did not enjoy uh, doing other people's picks for the next five years. <laughs> what was your least favorite song you recorded as a cover? Uh, it's going to be, it's funny because this one is now popping in the algorithm a little bit. Um, this song by Miracle Musical, Dream Suite in C Major. Um, I So we got a fan request to do that. And I'd never heard this song. I didn't know the artist at all. Uh, I, I had no context for this. It was just a song that this person liked. We're like, okay, we'll, we'll do this. But then I listened to it and it's like a seven minute song and there are lyrics in French and there's no repeated form. It's, it was really complicated. And uh, it, I just procrastinated doing this for so long um, there were, there was a huge list. There were like 50 songs that we had to get through. And I just like kept putting it on the end of the list and then more songs we could add to the list. I'd move that back to the end of the list again and again. So it was, it was like two and a half years that this song was just staring me down, like waiting for me to record it. And <laughs> it was like two and a half years of me dreading this, uh, this particular song. So it, it came out, it was, it was fine, I guess. I don't think I did a particularly great job with uh, the performance on that song, but um, just because of the context of where my workload was and having to having to get through a bunch of stuff, that was probably the worst one I ever did. <laughs> now, uh, Despacito, uh, that cover um, has almost two million views on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> Is that your most streamed or most listened to cover? Yeah, but also that's a cover of the most popular song in the world, right? <laughs> it's the most popular piece of, dare I say, art, at least entertainment, that has ever existed, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know how much credit I can actually take for, for that because it, it's just regurgitating the most popular thing to ever exist. So I, I don't know. You know what? I even... It's funny because uh, I tried to work that into a set of original music uh, after Phantom Arrival came out in 2018. Because um, we had a we had a song on that record, uh, Mercury Retrograde, that's got a little bit of a cumbia breakdown in the middle. And I was like, you know what would be funny? If we just played a few bars of Despacito in the middle of this cumbia section. And we did it at a show in Iowa and nobody gave a shit. I was like... Nah. <laughs> Not even like a sideways kind of <laughs> laugh. Like nobody gets this. At, nobody cared at all. So yeah, that was, <laughs> it was not a, not nearly as funny as I thought it was, but yeah, it, nobody cares about Despacito. Your, uh, your boss, Mike Sosinski was telling me that uh, your cover got press and like Vice and AP and some other news outlets. Oh, you know, we had, when we did the Saves a Day cover album, that got a write up in alt press um, mm. that was like, what, nine years ago now? Dang. Um, 
yeah, the Despacito cover was uh, featured on like a BBC article or something also. like. <laughs> What was the article? It was like people are covering the song. Here's a here's a breakdown. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, um, it was like their their top seven covers of Despacito or something like from the BBC. Like, okay, <laughs> See, you made the top seven. Yeah. I don't know. Those kids in Iowa did not appreciate it that night. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I want to jump forward and talk about your new album, Lavos. Sure. Let's talk about the musicality of the album first. Feels like your influences are a little more broadened. Feels like the songs are a little bit more complex from a composing point of view. Sure, sure. So I'm curious, um, you know, what led to that kind of, was it just a progression in your own songwriting or did you consciously try to think about what you want to do as an artist and and challenge yourself? Uh, Well, I had a conversation with my buddy, uh, Nick, recently. I think this was like before we did a podcast, so it didn't make it on there. But what I kind of realized what I was trying to do with like my influences on this record was make the album that I wanted when I was like 18 years old and never got. Uh, so when I was listening to and the battle begun um, and like uh what else like a lot of thrice I was listening to at that point and Francis, the mute by the Mars Volta had just come out. Um, so everything that was like in my, uh, rotation when I was like about to graduate high school, I always felt like, Oh man, if we had just like had a little bit more of ska in this kind of music or more horns. And that's sort of something I've been chasing, I guess, for the last, 16 years um just being able to like meld all of my my uh like post hardcore influences and progressive influences with the ska that i was also really enamored with as a teenager um and i i guess i just never really felt like i had the opportunity to do it until now uh we were headed in that direction i think off of phantom arrival in 2018 but i didn't want to abandon some of the more third wave ska centric themes um like fully yet uh so i I think at this point lavos is just me tapping into these influences that i've held on to since high school and really being able to utilize them without feeling like i'm supposed to do this thing because of ska or do that thing because of you know what what other people expect of this band so I, i think this is really just um like me unbridled songwriting uh just my natural state like this is what i've been trying to get out there for 16 years i'm curious about as a as a songwriter as you know writing the different sections and styles of these songs having done so many covers and having worked through transposing so many covers do you feel like that had an influence on how you've um, assembled your original songs and how you've written your original songs uh, maybe not that much. Um, I mean, I, I view the cover song work as, as kind of, as, yeah, as, as homework, basically. I mean, uh, I studied composition in college and, um, a big part of that was writing style studies where they'd give you like an assignment, like, right here's a theme, write it in the style of Mozart or Bach or whatever. And I think a lot of 
the cover songs I approached with that mindset. So in the general sense of me just doing musical work, uh, I got more practice in um, and recording like 200 plus cover arrangements definitely made me a better musician in the grand scheme of things. Uh, but I'm reluctant to say that I had any specific influence from those experiences with the cover songs that uh, maybe, maybe it's just because I, I really want to sever that connection so badly. So maybe, I mean, maybe they're there, those connections and they're subconscious and I don't realize them. Uh, but I, I really want to distance myself from that period of my life. So I, I, I will deny bringing, bringing over anything from that, from those cover songs. All right. Denial, yeah. denial accepted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in the composition of these songs, is it all you or in the writing and recording are other players uh, coloring these parts or, or contributing? Uh, so on this record, for the first time, I did have a co-write with Harold, our trumpet player. Um, that's on the song Atlas Emergence. Uh, but we both contributed like the writing part of that before uh, we get to recording. So uh, that's that's where all of the composition takes place uh, for this stuff. Um, I do all the writing and then I do very detailed demoing uh, and write out sheet music for everyone. And for this record, what uh, what we did was I was living in New York by the time we were ready to actually record this. I started writing it a long time ago, but in 2021, uh, I basically had fully fleshed out demos for for everyone. The writing process was was completed at that point. Um, I went down to Fort Worth. We rented a practice studio for three days, and we just played everything on the album just to to see how it worked uh, with everyone in the, in the room. And there were a few small changes that we made, but uh, most of the album is pretty true to the original demos. Um, and uh, then I went back a month later, we rented an Airbnb and we tracked the whole, the whole thing. Um, I, I try to get as detailed a pre-production process as possible. Um, cause just like, there's always just been a huge workload. Uh, like we've been juggling so many projects, like we've been on a pace of like two to four albums a year for the last decade. So trying not to waste time in the studio has always been a, a, a big thing I'm concerned with. Um, so yeah, all the writing happened well before uh, anyone got in a room and played the music together. One of the things that strikes me about the record is that it sounds like you put thought into the sound of the music and the style of music that you're choosing in terms of what it's expressing to go with your lyrics in that moment. Is that something that you thought about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I write all the lyrics first before any musical material. Um, so yeah, that definitely, I, I, that's the order that I work in. So I'll, I'll, I'll make changes. It's not like set in stone, but I start with lyrics. So finding music to fit the lyrics that I have is, uh, is absolutely how that goes about. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the music's all over the place. I mean, that's part of what you're doing on this record. It's up and down and going in all kinds of different directions. So you kind of hear your emotions go all over the place too, in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's, there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, um, I guess, extremes in terms of like, uh, yeah, you know, I, 
so this is the thing that people have, have said to me a lot. Like, there's a lot of different styles on on the record, and I honestly haven't didn't really think about it that that way until people started telling me that. Because um, I I kind of wrote it thinking like, okay, this is my style, and it incorporates like these different tempos um, and these different ska things um, or these different volumes or whatever. Uh, but yeah, here, hearing that, like there's, there's a lot of stylistic variation is very much like a afterwards kind of thing that I'm just like reckoning with now. Like a lot of people have told me that, um, which is interesting in my own self analysis, I guess. Did you have any techniques that you would think about specifically? Like, I know like anxiety plays a role in, in a lot of these songs. Like, like this is something musical that really accentuates anxiety. For instance, did you have any like specific tools that you would use to thinking about it that way? Like how do I musically show that this is an anxious moment or that sort of thing? Uh, yeah. I don't know if I explicitly was like this key area means this emotion kind of thing, but, uh, I think I did go to like places where like where okay i need the tonal center to be a little uncertain because the anxiety is so present at this point um so maybe let's uh, try and find a way to change the key uh let's find a a pivot point and go somewhere weird i don't there were there were certainly a lot of points where musically i was trying to find ways to um to be a little less tethered uh, because I, for sure, like the lyrics and the emotions I'm trying to convey are uh, a little bit less um, grounded than than I would have liked, and certainly, uh, I, a lot of the emotions I'm trying to trying to write about were beyond my control. Um, so, I guess there was an effort to sort of wrest control away from the listener in a lot of places, where like, hey, just as you're getting to this tonal center you think you're home i have to change it because i don't want you to get comfortable as a listener either so yeah those those things were definitely present in my decision making process um i I don't know if i can specifically name like this is a a technique that i use to to do this particular thing um i think maybe if i went back and and did some some more self-analysis of 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 the work i might be able to identify some of those things and be like oh i have a tendency to uh, to shift into the relative minor when I, when I'm talking about this thing or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. but, uh, I, I didn't notice notice too much of that specificity while I was writing. And this is your, you'd say most personal record that you've ever written. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about what went behind? Are you comfortable talking about the inspiration behind this record? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Then we can talk about some specific songs, but just for context. Yeah, the uh, so this was, I guess, maybe about a year and a half ago. I I let everyone know um, that when I was touring in the band Be Like Max, uh, their singer assaulted me on stage, um, and it was part of a pattern of homophobic behavior. And uh, I kind of wanted to get that out there um, because I know that that's like a big drama kind of thing, and um, I wanted to be able to actually talk about how it affected me by the time the album is out so yeah so this is this is really now like i've been able to sit with it out there and it's it's uh it's helped me sort of like get more in touch with the actual 
emotional experience of moving through the the trauma of that and being able to express it in these lyrics and, and this record. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, pretty much that one event was like the inciting thing that, that led to uh, writing all the lyrics for this, this album. You started going to therapy as well after that. Yeah. That was obviously a tool that you used to help work through it. So I assume that that was also your songwriting and your therapy was probably overlapped in a way. Yeah. Um, therapy is something that uh, was new to me then. And I just, I just think like maybe I had been uh, trying to funnel too much of my energy into like the artistic struggle. I'm like using air quotes again. Um, <laughs> like, cause like there's, there's sort of like this, this, expectation that uh you as an artist like you take your despair and anxiety and all the negative things and you're supposed to create amazing art out of it and that's a really unrealistic expectation um because those those things when you're dealing with them can just be crippling and uh you you can't you can't just uh, turn it turn it turn it into a song or just transform it into incredible art um so being in, in an environment where I can talk with someone about these things and not have the expectation of this has to go out into the world and take a life of its own as art and it must have meaning. Um, just being able to take away that pressure and, and open up about these things to, to another human. Um, that was a new experience for me and that having that available, uh, I think made my artistic path forward more fruitful and easier and less stressful. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There is a lot of weird misconceptions that continue on about the role of the artist and their suffering and, and even the need for them to suffer in order to create so such a weird, um, such a weird myth, I guess that's just continues to <laughs> exist. I mean, whether or not you suffer, it really has no bearing on like how brilliant your work of art is. It shouldn't have to. No. Yeah. But at the same time, as an artist, who's a human being processing your world, I think is part of your process. And if that happens to be something that is suffering, then uh, you're, you're doing yourself a disservice. If you're not working through it that way, you know, but if you're not in a time in your life you're suffering, it doesn't feel like you have to force suffering to happen. There was actually a uh, an episode of Adventure Time that I was watching. <laughs> we were discussing it on on my podcast recently, where Flame Princess is is trying to find inspiration uh, for her rap career, <laughs> and she's just <laughs> sort of artificially placing herself in all these situations just so she can find some sort of struggle. Uh, to inspire her. And it, it was really weird. It felt very inauthentic. Um, and it, it was, it, it, that's kind of one of the reasons why I love a show like that is it finds these, these weird little nuggets that just resonate with me um, as an artist. But yeah, it, it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird sort of expectation um, as an artist, as a musician, as a songwriter, a lyricist, you know, um, like we are offering people like a, like pages of our diary basically. Um, and 
sometimes people just want that diary to be full of shit. Like it, they want it to be bad. And like, I, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, like a good, a good writer can find ways to, to make anything compelling. And, uh, I think sometimes because of, be, because we unnecessarily put pressure on ourselves to, um, to focus on like the bad, the bad shit, um, we can get, get sort of stuck on that and uh it winds up affecting us beyond just you know being an artist um so yeah therapy was really instrumental in in helping me sort of unlock that that position i uh, that i found myself stuck in i guess the song uh, luminaire line that stuck sticks out to me i i'm illuminated on display i'm helpless to escape and and uh, also i was reading that you um you were you wrote that song while you were on break at work after having like anxiety attacks throughout the day. Yeah. So yeah, I guess my question is, I'm curious about that line and, and the songwriting process of this song. Yeah. That, uh, that line is maybe like the most raw line on the whole record. Um, real interesting that you like keyed into that, um, <laughs> as like the, the first thing you bring up because yeah, that is literally me describing the, the physicality of, of being on stage of having the stage lights blinding me and not really being able to see the crowd or, or what's going on, just being in a, a disoriented state and having someone walk across the stage, ignore you when you say no and have him grab you and, you know, stick his tongue down your throat and just be in this this insane impossible situation uh that's that's the literal description of of what happened <laughs> um yeah so yeah that i mean in a lot of ways that that chorus that line in particular is sort of the centerpiece of the whole album in a fucked up way sure uh but it was it was possibly the most direct unadulterated uh just straight out of my consciousness kind of lyric that I've ever written. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a it really powerful to me that you, that you picked up on that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it, it resonated in that way, I guess. Yeah. It's interesting how powerful it is to just say that you're helpless. Like, like what a powerful statement that is to say that you feel helpless. Yeah, it was, uh, well, it was, it was helpless in a way that I had never felt before and, um, didn't think was possible to feel before. Uh, and I mean, you know, unfortunately we, you know, plumbing the depths of despair, it's like you, you find yourself in an unfamiliar place, but, uh, because it was so new that, that feeling, uh, I guess it was possibly just, uh, in, an easier way to, to describe it. Um, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not even fully a hundred percent sure about how, how I was able to write that song. Cause I did it like in the, in while having anxiety attacks as a cashier at CVS. <laughs> so, uh, it, it was a little bit of an out of body experience, I suppose. How did you feel when it, you were done writing? Were you still like, as I know, if, I mean, I've had anxiety. Sometimes it doesn't like, magically disappear when you work through it it kind of, there's like this sort of like lingering effect where your brain is kind of worked through it but your body hasn't caught up yet 
Yeah, it. Uh, I, I kind of just let it sit for a little while. Um, I, I wrote it on my phone in the Notes app, which a lot of people do. Um, and I didn't look at it for a couple of days, and I pulled it up and I looked at it. I was like, huh. Uh, and then I, I, I put it away again for for another week or so. And then uh, at my next therapy session after that, you know, I brought it up. I was, I think I, I think I wrote some of the best lyrics that I've ever written. Uh, but I have to go back and, and look at this and, and, and really check them out again, see, make sure that's not all jumbled up nonsense. But I, th- I think I did something productive with this. I'm just not sure about it yet. And it did take, take some time to, to distance myself from, from the experience to go back and look at it a little less. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't say it's completely objective, but a little less subjectively. Is it the same song that you say, uh, I'm eager to take the bait with bated breath. I won't breathe a word to anyone. I won't second guess. Uh, that's in weirdo with a capital O. Oh, that's in weird. Yeah. Weird with a capital O. Sorry. Yeah. That's another, that's another line that I, and, and that particular song as well that caught my attention. Yeah. That song is more specifically about the, um, the physical symptoms of the anxiety attacks that I was having, um, where I, where I was feel my, my throat closing up and I couldn't breathe. And those, that's what prompted me to get into therapy. It was like, this is having a, a physical effect. Um, like, (laughs) you know, at that point in my life, like another completely new experience that uh, I didn't know how to interpret it. It was like, I think someone else needs to help me at this point. Um, so yeah, that song is, is pretty much about the physical symptoms of, the anxiety attacks that got me starting therapy. Did you not have anxiety attacks before this? No. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's terrifying. The first time you have one, you don't even know what's happening. Right. Yeah. I had my first, I had like, I had serious anxiety when I was in my early mid twenties, late twenties to some degree as well. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I it, 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 therapy was the the direction I took too. I was like, I don't know what's happening to me. <laughs> I have to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I I'd always been kind of a, a high strung neurotic person, um, but I think earlier in my life I'd found other ways to channel that that kind of nervous energy um, by working a lot, um, by you know writing and recording like multiple albums a year <laughs> and just not not slowing down enough to like really think about anything um but i guess that was that was kind of just the point that where it broke for me um and uh yeah i mean like things have have improved uh since then not i mean not 100% of course it's you know it, it's it's ongoing and actually just started with a new therapist and things seem to be improving a little bit there. And, um, but yeah, that, that incident, um, it's now, now almost four years ago, I guess, uh, was like a pretty, pretty like, uh, I mean a life changing moment, I guess, like a lot of things are different on this side of it. Um, and I, from what I understand, that's, I guess that's just the way trauma works for many people. So <laughs> has the album helped you process it or for sure? Do you feel like it's, yeah, you do. Yeah. Well, the thing was when I, 
when I wrote the songs, a lot of it was just so um, like it, it, I didn't like I you know I spoke a little bit about this before. It's like I didn't even necessarily have like full conscious control of like the writing experience. Um, that I, I didn't really consider what would happen with the songs. And then once they were all written and demoed and like, okay, well, I guess uh, I'm just going to be one of those guys that never talks about their lyrics. It's just like, I'm never going to talk about this. Um, I'll, I'll be, you know, dark and mysterious or whatever. And, <laughs> and, uh, and no one will ever know. Uh, but it was, it was actually the, that first time we rehearsed the songs um, after it was all demoed and everything uh, and I was in a room with five other people and I was singing these words like aloud, like for the first time I was like, it reframed it for me. It was like, this is, this is suddenly a lot more real and I'm interfacing with this experience in a much different way. Um, and maybe this has to be, maybe there's a lot more to, to reckon with than I realized. Um, and simply putting it out there uh, can help me figure that out a little bit more. So it, it definitely, it, it has definitely improved my situation, just being able to talk about it, put it out there and just be like, Hey, yeah, I, I wrote these songs. It's like air quotes again, art. Um, but it's about something real that I do need to talk about and reckon with and uh, not hang on to just by myself. Um, and that's been a almost universally positive experience for me. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. When I went through this, it was like, you know, I, I kind of I relate to what you're saying. Like, it's kind of like, it starts out being like, okay, this is a, this is a thing I can't talk about. But then it's like, as soon as you start talking about it, it just the act of talking about it or talking to friends or therapists, it gives you it it just immediately knocks it down a level because suddenly it's like you're applying language to it. You're kind of talking about it as a foreign thing happening to you in a way. Exactly. Yeah. So, so you get a little bit of distance from it and you can start kind of analyzing it and start trying to, trying to work on it. Yeah. That's 100% my experience. Yeah. The song red gate. Here's another, uh, here's another line that stuck out to me. This is from red gate. Uh, in truth, I'm paralyzed with living nightmares. I began to realize I need to break the cycle. Yeah, so that song um, is mostly about the decision to move away from Texas to move back to New York as sort of as a possible solution to a lot of things that I felt were going wrong. Um, and you know, a lot in my life, I feel like I needed a a reset. Because uh, I was caught in cycles of abuse, uh, where, you know, I would let people do things to me, take advantage of me over and over again, um, and I was trying to find a way out. And uh, moving across country was, at that point, the you know the solution that I that I've found, and it, it's worked out pretty well actually for me um, in New York. But Redgate, in particular, um, it's it's a the reference is from the video game Chrono Trigger. It's it's a uh, it's about the moment where one of the characters go gets to go back in time and sort of reset her uh her trauma. Um so like there was there was a a little point of reference um 
in like this whole extended metaphor that I was using to anchor some of the lyrics uh, with this, this Chrono Trigger thing. Um, but yeah, it's uh, that song and the Enchiridion are, are basically about uh, moving to New York as a solution to like break the cycle. But dressed up in Chrono Trigger? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everything has layers, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I've talked about this a little bit in some other interviews, but um, the Chrono Trigger thing is is more just like a tool for me. Uh, it was like I, here's a set of references that I can use as an anchor, uh, where this is some subject material that I can relate it to. Um, that you know, as like a like an artistic device, I guess, where um, I can find these little connections, and it it's not even necessarily important if. Uh, people get references. It's not really why it's there. Just it's just uh, sort of for my own my own writing process, a tool that I use, I guess. What's it been like uh, fronting a band that uh, lives in another state than you? Uh, well, we haven't done a whole lot because I moved during the pandemic, and uh, I've I've just gone back down there a few times a year for recording and some shows. And uh, we just did some light touring last month around that record release. So we're, we're really about to start getting into a more active schedule uh, later on this year. And it's probably going to be more complicated than it has been the last couple of years. Um, but I don't know. A lot of other people do it. You know, Mike lives in California. The rest of the Kill Lincoln guys are all East Coast. Um, you know, everyone's adults now. and some of the other guys in the band like are married with kids and, and jobs and stuff. And, uh, everyone's kind of, you know, doing their own thing. It's, we're more resourceful now in, in the way that we can plan things. So, um, yeah, it's just, a, it's just like 25 hours of drive time to get there. No, not a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, you drive out there, you don't fly. No. Well, I have the tour van here with me in Brooklyn. Oh, right. Oof. You just, uh, Download a few episodes of Indefense of Ska and uh, hit the road, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, that's, yeah, that's uh, the last, so <laughs> my last trip there and back in December, I probably listened to like 10 episodes. Wow. Smart. Yeah. Smart. <laughs> now, Chris Reeves was telling me that, um, I love your perspective on this. A lot of the guys in uh, your band and also I think some of them are also in Flip in the combined effort. Uh, yeah, our, our trombone player, Willie, is, is in that band also. He said that they're kind of the backbone of this the Denton scene, and they're always helping out, and they're always kind of helping making things happen. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Willie plays trombone with with Flip, and our drummer Will also plays drums for Mister Kingpin, uh, which is John hmm. Bravo's post Rude King project. Um, yes. And uh, I I've done a bunch of the recording and production for flips stuff. Um, let's see our saxophone player, AJ used to play in the big news from Oklahoma city. Uh, so yeah, I mean, all the guys are around and doing stuff. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like any other local music scene where there's a fair amount of that, you know, band member incestuous kind of thing. Everyone's involved in everyone else's projects. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, the other the other band that's really doing a lot in Denton right now is Madeline. Um, those are some very good friends of ours, and uh, I did 
plenty of recording work for them back in the day. Uh, and Mark, their, their singer, he, uh, he does the Sky by Sky West festival in Texas every year. So yeah, I mean, there's a good crew of, of folks in Denton and the DFW area that are always working, always, always doing something. I was reading this article about Ska by Ska West uh, in eight, 2018, and it's like a review of the of the show. And the the writer says that you get on stage and say that this next song is a fun song about how nothing matters and we're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any idea what song you were introducing? Yeah, that's a uh, ghoulish overkill from Phantom Arrival. Um, mm. Yeah, that's usually how I intro that track. Um, it's uh, yeah, I mean that's what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's it's a kind of a ska song, I guess. It's like it's heavy. Um, it's you can stomp to it. It's like, it's like slowish mid tempo, like heavy ska. So like you can, you can stomp around, get moving a little bit. Um, yeah. 2018 at ska by ska West. So that must've been at three links. I think that was the year Abrascadabra came from Brazil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were in the article. Yeah. Um, oh, and, and Dan pot played. Mm. and who else was on that year? That's been a fun festival. Um, we had Mephiscopheles headline last year. How long has the festival been a thing? Uh, I think Mark started doing it in 2015, um, and I actually helped him with some of the booking for 2017. Um we got uh who did we get that year? Los Carnales and mm-hmm. Dan Podhast were like our two headliners. Um and then I think it's changed venues a few times and now now it's changed cities. So it's gone through a bunch of different changes. But yeah, Mark has been doing it in some capacity since twenty fifteen. Very nice. And how did the crowd react to your song about how we're all gonna die? Uh I mean, crowd reaction to our songs is inconsistent. (laughs) 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 I, 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 I'm going to assume that they were okay with it. Um, I know the cats in Hans Gruber and the diehards really love that song. Uh, I think we almost didn't play it, uh, last month when we were down there playing a show with them and, uh, they yelled at us that we had to play it. So, uh, we did it just to, to placate Hans Gruber and the diehards. (laughs) <laughs> but uh yeah i mean that song usually goes over pretty well i guess nice shout out hans gruber and the diehards yeah oh man i love that band we toured with them right before the pandemic it was like under the wire up until like february 2020 so you didn't actually run into any of the covid like cancellations no uh we were we were on the road and like people were getting like news updates on their phones like hey there's this coronavirus thing in china and we were like huh is that, is that like, is it going to come here? It's like, no, probably not. Like, remember they had SARS and like, it didn't really come here. Like, we'll probably be fine. <laughs> it's like, oh, so, so these shows that I'm booking in June, like we, I'll, I'll keep doing that. Like, <laughs> yeah. Things turned out very differently. <laughs>
don't go anywhere. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head over to our Patreon. Thank you for listening to In Defense of Scott. Please rate and review this podcast and tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at In Defense of Scott. Pick up Aaron's book, In Defense of Ska, at your local bookstore or online. This podcast is edited by Chris Reeves of Ska Punk International. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leaving you by saying Ska now more than ever. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.